Hello, church family. Our scripture reading today is Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street's corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their rewards. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. But do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen to others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in Amen. secret, and your Father Exciting. who sees in secret will reward you. Today and to dive into this beautiful text uh, that so many of us have, have kind of spent time in uh, throughout the course of our lives. Some of you this might be new, um, and I just want to encourage you, I hope you've been involved just in the reading plan and just diving deep into the book of Matthew. There's all kind of resources that are available to you, so if you're here this morning or you're watching online, we just encourage you uh, to not let this be the only part of Matthew 6 you dive into. Let it be a part of your study, and even a part of that, I just want to kind of make an encouragement to you on Wednesday nights, you can even go deeper, and so this morning, as, as we get into this text, really just going to f- focus on the first couple verses. We'll, we'll, look, we'll talk through the whole thing, but really the first couple. Uh, but you'll be able, if you want to dive deeper into fasting and prayer and giving and what do these things mean, you can do that by coming to Behind the Message this Wednesday night or uh, go part of, be a part of the women's study group on the Sermon on the Mount where they're walking even more slowly through these sections of Scripture. So just want to encourage you, there's all kinds of resources to help you go deeper as we get into this beautiful text. But as we come into Matthew 6 and 7, we begin to see a shift in this Sermon on the Mount, the the King's Sermon. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven that is breaking into the world through his presence and will fully come in his death and resurrection. He's also been talking about how this kingdom of heaven is built on this idea of righteousness and exceeding righteousness. And so we've been chasing this theme as we've been walking 
through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we come to chapter 6, Jesus begins to focus and shift the, the direction from, okay, what not to do to what do we do? How do we seek this kingdom? How do we seek this righteousness? What should this look like in the life of a child of God? Uh, and I don't know about you, but when I think about seeking, when I think about finding, it makes me think about things that I've lost. Has anyone ever lost something important to you before? Uh, I have. I can remember back, this was a several years ago um, when I was in, in better shape and I had a gym membership at Planet Fitness in Johnson City and we were in this season of life where we have a lot of little kids and we had just had another one so we had a couple babies at home and a newborn baby and I, it was early in the morning and I was going to work out before I went to work and I was just excited to be able to kind of get out of the house and relieve some stress. So I went to the gym, worked out, was excited. I'm going to get to the office early, work hard. I get back to the car and I realize I don't have my keys. And this is about 7.30 in the morning. I, I have my, my lovely bride at home with three little babies. She's been up most of the night. And the last thing on earth I want to do is call my wife, make her pack up all three children, drive out to Johnson City to rescue me. So I'm in a panic. And I can't, did I lock my keys in the car? Did I leave them? I can't see them in the car. Go back, ask the people at the front desk. No one's turned in keys. Go back to the locker. Can't find anything. Just this frantic search of, and just envisioning this phone call where I'm going to wake up my bride from sleep and make her get all these children and come. And that conversation is not going to go well. And what am I going to do? And so as I'm looking around, I, I kind of trace my steps back to where I was working out. And by one of the, the bench sets, there are my keys sitting on the floor. And my heart leapt within me with joy that what was lost had now been found. And I'm sure a lot of you have experienced something like that before where you're frantically searching, trying to find something you need, something that's valuable to you. And if, if you had found me in that moment and you'd asked me this question, Paul, what's important to you? There's probably several things that I would have said. There were many things that were important to me, but there was only one thing that was most important. And that was finding my keys. I have to find my keys. And as we come into this passage of Scripture, Jesus begins to reorient his audience, the hearers, to what is most important. The beginning of chapter 5, he says, seeking the kingdom of righteousness, he describes how it begins with this idea of spiritual bankruptcy, radical repentance, that then gets fleshed out in this pursuing righteousness and being willing to suffer and becoming salt and light, and how people who live for God's kingdom, they're not just going to try to keep the letter of the law like the Pharisees did, who had twisted it, who had brought it down to meet their own standards, who had comparative righteousness, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks. But now Jesus begins to shift the conversation in chapter 6 and 7, and he's revealing to his listeners and to us this morning what kingdom pursuit looks like. What does it look like for you? What does it look like for me. And that leads us to our big truth this morning that we're really going to be chasing over the next few weeks, which is this. Children of God seek his kingdom and righteousness first and foremost. Children of God seek his kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost. Just like that day I was looking for my car keys frantically trying to find them. Of all the things that mattered to me in that moment, the thing that I wanted to find first and foremost were my keys. For a child of God, there are a lot of things that matter in your life. 
There are a lot of things that you should care about, be concerned about, that should captivate your attention. But what Jesus wants us to see as we walk through chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that there is one thing that should capture our attention more than anything else. There's one thing that we should seek above all other things. That we should seek it not just first, but foremost, above everything else. And that's God's kingdom and his righteousness. And we see this here in Matthew chapter 6 in a few places. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God. Not just seek the kingdom of God, but seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. The righteousness that comes from him. Not from our own good works, but from his work that gets lived out through us. And all these other things, all these things will be added to you. We see this in the Lord's Prayer that we heard read earlier. Pray then like this, our our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Listen to this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before we pray about daily bread, before we pray about our need for forgiveness, before we pray about protect us from temptation, no, your kingdom come, your name be lifted high. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, we'll look at next week. Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Seek the kingdom first. Seek his righteousness first. So that should lead us to wrestle with this question, well, how do we do that? What does it look like? What does it mean to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost. What does that look like practically for us as Jesus followers? And thankfully, in the Sermon on the Mount, through chapter 6 and chapter 7, Jesus paints a clear picture of what this seeking first and foremost looks like. And so this morning, I want to try to begin addressing that question. What, What does it mean to seek first God's kingdom, to seek first his righteousness how do we begin to do that? And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking that as we walk through this beautiful text together. So let's take on that first question this morning. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time. What does it mean to seek God's kingdom and righteousness first and foremost? What does that mean? What, what does that look like? Let's, let's put some definition to it. Where do we begin in this seeking, this pursuit? A few big eyes to this. The first one is this. God desires wholehearted devotion, not passive allegiance. God desires wholehearted devotion, not just passive allegiance. If you have your Bible open, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. So we didn't read this text at the beginning this morning, but this is the verse that leads into chapter 6. It is kind of the conclusion to what Jesus has been talking about in chapter 5, but also sets us up for chapter 6, and this is what Jesus said. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Think about that statement. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what's leading into what Jesus is saying in chapter 6. Well, what does that mean? The word perfect there means wholeness or completeness. So he's not just talking about perfect as not making any mistakes or perfect as being sinless, but he's talking about that the way we live our lives would be holistic, 
complete. Meaning that holiness and the pursuit of holiness would permeate every part of our lives. So in order to begin seeking God's kingdom first and foremost, God desires to create within your heart and my heart, the hearts of his people, a desire to love him with our all. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is what Jesus is talking about or what God talks about to his people through the book of Leviticus. You shall be holy for I am holy. That every area of the people of God's lives are meant to be marked by a pursuit of holiness. That every area of the people of God's lives are meant to be marked by a love for God. That all of us, heart, mind, soul, strength, are being conformed into the image of God. That God doesn't want just a part of us. He doesn't just want us to obey rules. That God wants your heart. God wants my heart. He wants our all. And so all the rules, all the laws that were given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus and the Old Testament that we've been talking about how the Pharisees took them and they twisted the heart of the law. The reason why God had given all those rules was to help God's people follow him with a whole heart. Why? So that his presence might be among them and their life might be a light to the nations around them. That God's rules were meant to draw his people into wholehearted pursuit, wholehearted allegiance. And we talked about this back in in Leviticus. A good example of this are, are house rules. That most families have house rules. Things like don't kick the cat, you know, don't skydive off your bed, don't lick the outlets, you know, be kind, show respect, honor, all those things. And those rules, they, they have a dimension of protection, they have a dimension to help create a healthy environment, but ultimately house rules that families have, including my family, these house rules are to help create communion, relationship. They keep us in right harmony with one another. And so all the rules that were given by God in the Old Testament to his people were not to restrain or confine them, but to set them free to live and follow God. But what ended up happening over the course of time is that people began to just keep the letter of the law, a passive allegiance. I'm going to do the minimum of what it means to follow God instead of love him with a whole heart. The holiness God desires is a wholeness. Every facet of our thinking, feeling, wanting, and doing should be centered on God. And so what Jesus is confronting as we go into chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that the Pharisees and the people of God have not been seeking him with their whole heart. Which leads to a question for you and for me this morning. Does your pursuit of God look like wholehearted devotion? Or does your pursuit of God look like passive allegiance? Are you running after God with your all? Are you surrendering every part of your life to him? Or are there certain parts of your life, certain parts of your heart, your mind, that you are pursuing things other than him? Are there other saviors that you're putting your hope in other than God this morning? Are you pursuing him with a whole heart? And so that sets up the context for chapter 6, which leads to a second big idea, which is this. Righteous worship, so when we do pursue God rightly, is centered on God. 
not on the approval or affirmation of people. Righteous worship is centered on God, not the approval and affirmation of people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness. If you highlight, underline, you want to highlight that word. Before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying he's giving us a warning and he's talking about what worship is and what worship isn't. That right worship, it's centered on God, not the approval and affirmation of people. So let's talk about what that means. There's really two parts. The first part of this is that God is the goal of our worship. God desires to be the goal of your worship and my worship. God does not just want you or me to do practices of worship, show up for church, sing a song, give to the needy, pray, read our scripture. It's not about the practices, it's about the person. It's about who we're pursuing more than what we're doing. One of the things that you might have heard us say a lot is we care more about who you're becoming than what you're doing. It doesn't mean that the things that we do for God don't matter, they do. We'll get to that in a minute but that God cares about your heart, and God is the goal of worship. In verse 1, it says that it's about the Father in heaven. For then you'll have no reward from your Father. The emphasis is that we are to seek the Father more than we are to seek the reward or to seek the approval of other people. Three times in this passage, you have this phrase, the Father who sees in secret. Don't live for the approval of men. Don't live for the applause or affirmation of people. Live for the Father. The emphasis in the original language is that we are to focus on the, not the reward that we receive by doing these things rightly, but that we focus on the one who gives the reward. We are to focus on the giver, not the gift. That God is the goal of our worship. God doesn't want your religious action. God wants your heart. Worship is about the heart. Who are you seeking first? Who are you seeking foremost? God is the goal of worship. A great example of this is Cain and Abel. So you go back to Genesis chapter 4 and think about Cain and Abel. And they both bring an offering to God. They both bring a sacrifice. Abel brings his best lamb. Cain brings uh, part of his fruit that he has harvested. And we know from the Old Testament that God receives the grain offering and God receives the meat offering. One is not more important than the other. But what we see in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is that the difference between their acts is that one came out of a heart of worship to sacrifice. The other was just doing the action. And God praises Abel's sacrifice and he rejects Cain's sacrifice. You can show up in this room. There can be two people who both open the scripture, who both sing out loud, who both give money in the offering, who both take communion and walk out of this building and God says, I accept this person's worship but not this person. Why? Because it's not about what you bring. It's about who you're worshiping. Who are you worshiping this morning? What has your heart this morning? Worship is always first and foremost about the heart, our motive, our desire, not the action itself. And so God, through Jesus Christ, living here and teaching this message, is beginning to expose the crowd that God is less desiring to get this specific act of worship. He wants your heart. 
And the religious leaders had made it about the act, but the religious leaders had also made it about the people and their approval, which leads to a second part of this uh, big idea, is that we are to beware our default temptation to fear man over God. And this is really the heart of our text this morning. Do you fear God most or do you fear man most? Do you live for the approval of God or do you live for the approval of man? And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had been living for the approval of man over the approval of God. This is what Jesus warns us about when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In verse 2, he says to be praised by them. And this is important. The first word in chapter 6 is beware. Again, if you circle, highlight, underline, highlight that word beware. Jesus is saying warning, warning, warning. Have you ever seen a warning label before? You know, you get your hot coffee in the morning. It says, warning, contents hot. You know, or I was blow drying my daughter's hair the other day. And on the blow dryer it says, warning, do not blow dry hair while in tub. You know, warning, take contents out of package before eating. And you wonder, who are these things for? And obviously somebody has done these things before, right? Well, Jesus is warning us this morning, be warned, beware. If you're not careful, you will live for the praise and applause and approval of men instead of God. And there's even a more subtle sin involved in this. And it's that if you're not careful you will begin to listen to the praise and approval and applause of men. And in your own heart, it will validate your standing before God. Meaning this, that there's going to be people who will look at your life and they're going to say, you go to church and you give and you do all these good things. Man, you're a great Christian. And Jesus says, be warned. The affirmation and praise and approval of others is not what you're looking for. We live for an audience of one, and that's God above all else. So warning, Jesus is giving us a warning because we are prone to this temptation. I want to be really careful. Jesus is not saying that that it is wrong for us to do right acts of worship in front of people. Earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, he says, let your light shine before men so that they may glorify your Father in heaven when they see your good deeds. So that doesn't mean that we can't do good deeds in front of people, but he's saying the purpose of our good deeds in front of people is not for our praise or our glory, but for the glory of God. So don't live in such a way to try to highlight your holiness in front of people so that they will praise you. Because if you do that, that's the only reward you're going to have. God wants you to live for him above all. His praise, his approval are what matters. The way he describes these kind of people, and can we just be honest, the way he describes us is he uses the word hypocrite. Three times in this text, he's going to say, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. And if we're not careful, we will read this and be like, I don't want to be like the hypocrites. Friends, we are the hypocrites. In this day, in this culture, hypocrite was a Greek term that meant someone who was an actor, someone who performed in front of others, that they played a part, that they played a role, a function, but it wasn't who they really were. One of the dangers of cultural Christianity is that we'll play the part. 
on social media, at work, at church, we put up a front that we're righteous, that we're holy, that we're pursuing God, that he matters most, but really on the inside, we're just living for the praise and approval of others. Be warned, beware. What has your heart this morning? What are you looking to this morning for affirmation? Are you looking to God? Are you looking to what people say about you? And we live in a culture, an insta-culture, social media, all these kind of things around us where everyone is telling us how to live and how to act and how to behave. And if we just do those things or say these things or post these things, people will praise you. People will approve you. People will affirm you. And Jesus is saying, don't buy into that trap. Don't live for the praise of others. Live for the praise of God. And this is the theme that runs all throughout Scripture. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Later on in Matthew 15, Jesus will clearly call out uh, the religious leaders and he'll say, You hypocrites! Same word. Well did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you when he said these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me we should be warned by that do we honor God with our lips but our hearts might be seeking something else in John 12 43 Jesus said this to some of the Pharisees that some of them had trusted in him some of them had believed in him but they would not tell other people about it why for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God And friends, we live in a world that if we are going to live for the glory of God, we will be rejected by men. If everyone around us is singing our praises and affirming our actions, we are not living for the glory of God. But if you live for the glory of God, if he is the center of your worship, you are going to receive rejection by men. It's a warning to us. This is a major temptation of the human heart. And I want you to feel the weight of this. Again, looking at this passage, verse 1, For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I want you to think about that. No reward. Jesus is saying, if you live for the approval and praise of other people, you will have no reward from me. What does that mean? It means that you're giving, it won't matter. Your fasting won't matter. Your prayer, it's not going to matter. Who are you living for? The praise of God or the praise of men? God calls us to have worship that is centered on him, not the approval of other people. In Luke 6, 26, Jesus will say, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so did their fathers do in regard to the false prophets. Woe to you when others speak well of you, because this is what they did to the false prophets. And that doesn't mean that we should live a life that people just hate us or reject us just because we're ugly. But no, when we follow God above all else, that's not going to make sense to a world that doesn't understand. So this leads to a really important question for you and for me this morning. How are you living for the fear of man over the fear of God? Whose approval do you desire most? Whose praise do you desire most in this life? 
Are you trying to get that from your coworker, from your boss, from your spouse, from your teacher, from your friends, likes on Instagram or Facebook? Whose approval are you craving this morning? And Jesus said there's only one that we should desire, and that is God. So God desires wholehearted devotion, that righteous worship would be centered on him, not the praise of people. But third, God-centered worship is the response of children who are captivated by the goodness of the Father. God-centered worship is the response of children who are captivated by the goodness of their Father. As you read through chapter 6, it's important to highlight and note every time it says the word Father. Over ten times in this passage, Jesus will tell the audience to address God as Father. This is a shift that we see in this passage, in this sermon. The way in which we relate to God is not just a deity somewhere out there, but Father. That we are brought in by the blood of Jesus, adopted to be sons and daughters of the King. So the way we have God-centered worship is to begin to see a change in relationship, a change in identity. That we're not just worshiping a God out there, but we're worshiping the God who is Father. And this Father loves his children. Don't miss the intimacy of the language that Jesus uses in chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're not performing for others. We're not performing even for God. We are responding to our Father who loves us, who cares about us. And we see this even in our children. I've seen this even in my children over the past couple weeks. Camden drawing me a picture, painting me a special picture just to give me. Evie uh, vacuuming our playroom and cleaning it up just to do something special for mom and I. Jack getting my hot water ready for my coffee in the morning, which is a huge gift to me as I, I need the caffeine in the morning. Trip helping me make my bed. All these things, my kids do things for me, not so that I will approve of them, but because they delight in making me happy and loving me. And so when we think about worship and God-centered worship and we think about heart and we think about motive and living for the praise of God, we're not doing something out of obligation. We're not doing something out of duty. We're not doing something because we have to. That God's inviting children in to love him and pursue him because they are the father who, he is the father who gives good gifts to his children. And so that's when he says, when you give... Do it in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When you fast, clean yourself up, anoint your head so that your Father who sees it may reward you. The goal is the relationship with the Father and we worship him because of his love and his goodness and his grace that's lavished on us. So worship is meant to be centered on God. Which leads to a second question. How then do we seek the Father's kingdom and righteousness first and foremost? Talked a little about the what. The what is about right worship, God-centered worship, wholehearted devotion, living for his praise and approval, not the approval of man. Well, how then do we live out these acts of worship? What does that look like? Very quickly, Jesus gives three examples 
And again, we'll chase these further in behind the message this week. We'll chase these further in the Sermon on the Mount study if you want to go into more depth of what these things are. But let me just give you some overview. First big idea is this. How do we seek the Father's kingdom and righteousness? We pursue right practices of worship. God's children pursue right practices of worship. Well, what are some right practices of worship? Jesus gives three. To give. Give to the needy. To pray. Pray to the Father. And to fast. Jesus doesn't condemn these actions. He just says it's not about the actions in and of themselves. It's who the actions are for. These actions are for God, not just to perform for ourselves. And this is really important. Giving, praying, fasting, this is important, are not suggestions. They're not recommendations. Notice how Jesus says, and when you give, and when you pray, and when you fast, the expectation is that we will be doing these things. That if our worship is centered on God and not the approval of people, that we will be doing these things. We'll just be doing them out of the right heart. Who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing. But this is important. What you're doing matters to God. Who you're becoming is more important than what you're doing, but what you're doing matters to God. Giving, fasting, praying, these things matter to God. So ways we worship Him are through these practices, through these mediums. So just another point of application. Do you give generously? Do you pray intentionally? Do you fast regularly? Not to get the approval of men, but to pursue the heart of God. Are any of these rhythms out of balance in your own devotion and pursuit of God? Second big idea, how do we seek first and foremost God's kingdom? Secondly, we reject the temptation to impress others. We have to reject the temptation to impress others. That as we do these things, there's going to be a temptation in your heart and my heart to impress others. I think this is one of the main reasons why Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What is the temptation in light of this passage? Well, it's to beware the praise and approval of others. So we ask the Lord to protect us. Lord, help us not give in to the temptation to do right practices of worship in order to gain the praise, the approval, the affirmation of other people. Let it be for you and you alone. Is it wrong to give in public, to take up an offering at church? Well, no. Is it wrong to give in public to impress others with how sacrificial we are? Yes. Is it wrong to pray in public? No, is it wrong to pray in public so that other people see how spiritual we are? Yes. Is it wrong to tell people that we are fasting? No. Is it wrong to tell people that we are fasting so that they will see our humility? Yes. What's the difference? It's the motive, the heart. Are we putting these things out in front of others to receive praise and commendation by them? Or are we doing it to glorify God? And even in our prayers, Jesus is very specific. When you read through the Lord's Prayer, there's three prayers centered on the glory of God. Hallowed be your name. May you be holy today. May I see you as holy. You are holy. Your kingdom come. Would you let your kingdom come here and now? Third, your will be done over my will, over my desires. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Those are God-centered prayers followed by three requests, three petitions. Give us today our daily bread. God, give me what I need today to trust you, to obey you. Help me be a person of forgiveness who understands how I've been forgiven and to forgive others. Lead me not into temptation. Protect me from the attacks of the evil one. These prayers are not centered on self. They're not to gain the approval, but they are to put our hearts in line with God. So we pursue right practices of worship. We reject the temptation to impress others. And then lastly, we rejoice in God's goodness by leveraging our lives for his glory and aligning them with his purposes. This really is the heart of the Lord's Prayer. It's a response to God's goodness. It's a prayer that we would align our lives with his purposes. And it's asking that he would be glorified in and through us. And this is what these three practices that Jesus gives are. He's not giving them as a legalistic code. But when he says to give, he's talking about generosity. That generosity is the overflow of a heart that has experienced the extravagant grace, mercy, forgiveness of God. He tells us to pray. Prayer is not about getting something from God. Prayer is about aligning our heart with God's heart. Prayer is not about the gift, it's about the giver and aligning our lives with him. And the last example he gives is fasting. Fasting is the denial of self-gratification in order to desperately pursue God's presence. That The hunger pains I feel right now show the deep need I have for God spiritually. That I would long for God more than I long for food. I would desire God more than I desire drink. And each of these practices are aimed at pushing our hearts to pursue God with all that we are in worship. Which leads us back to the question that we ask at the beginning. Friends, what are you seeking first and foremost? What are you seeking first and foremost? What's driving the pursuit of of your life? What's driving the pursuit of your worship? Is it the praise, the approval, the affirmation of people around you? Or is it the glory of God? The practices of worship you pursue, are they for yourself? Are they for others? Are they for God? And this morning, Jesus is calling us to turn our hearts, our affection, our praise back to the one that we were created for. To take the breath that he's given us and pour it back out to his glory. Who are you living for this morning? Would you just pray with me? Fathers, we come to a conclusion this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. We ask that you begin to change us that we would not live for the approval or praise of men, but that we would live for your praise. That our worship would be centered on you above all else. Father, and I just ask that you would help us this morning, that you would open our eyes to see the areas of our own hearts where we have 
turn from making you the priority, seeking you with our whole heart and we're seeking other things. Help us be a people who aren't hypocrites, who say one thing and do something else, who say we love Jesus, but we really live for the praise of other things. May our worship be genuine. And we thank you that all that's possible through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice in our place. Thank you for making a way to save us, to bring us into right worship. We love you and we praise you. It's his name we pray this morning.